Let's all bow our heads for a word of prayer before we start. Let's reverently bow our heads. Loving Heavenly Father, we ask, O oh God, at this time that your Holy Spirit would guide each question that is selected, that it would be the right one that's needed, as well that you would be with each one of the speakers, that you would give them the wisdom needed for them to answer the questions in a manner that is concise, and is a manner that is practical, in a manner that is pleasing to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It says, as Protestant Christians, should we or is it okay to participate in movements such as All Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, any Bible verses or spirit of prophecy is appreciated. Thank you. It's all right to participate as long as you have the right motive. Your involvement has to be different from the others. Others are doing it because they want to make their lives on earth better. And there's nothing wrong with that purpose. But I'll, because we know of this, we can participate. But our goal has to be we want to make their lives better because of, uh, our goal is to, to get them to see Christ in our lives. It's through our actions. And not necessarily to change this world to be a better place, but to change them to be a better people, to be ready to, 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 to meet the Lord where we will have a better place. So, yes, uh, you can be in the world, but not of the world. Um, principle that is helpful, not just in these types of issues, but in general. And that is that when we accept Christ and when we're baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we have joined a prophetic movement with a prophetic identity, with a prophetic mission. And everything that we do in this life must be subservient to that which we have committed to. So our careers, our relationships, our entertainment, how we spend our money, on and on down the list, the one question has to be, does what I do or what I get involved with help me advance the mission of the three angels? And if the answer is no, then don't do it. But if what we do can advance that, by doing what we're just talking about here, by helping others to come into closer relation with Jesus, to understand who he is, to manifest his character. Yes, in fact, uh, there have been things, even back in the days of Ellen White, that she joined up with some of the popular, like the temperance movement is one example, in which she joined with other non-Aventist organizations to advance what might be called secular or civil reforms. But the underlying mission that undergirded why she participated and why she encouraged others to participate is because it helps advance the three angels' message. And the three angels' messages going to the whole world in this generation is the only solution to sin, no matter what the issue is. So that's a helpful context to uh, think through all the difficult questions that I apply. Just going to what he's saying, um, I believe in you know, standing up for what is right against the abuses that's going on in the government and everyone else. But there's a quote that kind of balances out as well, just so we keep our focus. It says, talking about Jesus, it says, Yet the Savior, this is from Desire of Ages, it says, Yet the Savior attempted no civil reforms. He attacked no national abuses, nor condemned the national enemies. He did not interfere with the authority of administration of, of those in power. He who is our example kept aloof from earthly governments, not because he was indifferent to the woes of men, because the remedy did not lie in merely human and external measures. I always believe that you can never vote on a church board a change of heart. And it says, to be efficient, the cure must reach men individually and must regenerate the heart. 
So he was dealing with the root cause. I mean, I think it's good to be involved, but to really solve the problem, you got to go back to the root cause and deal with the heart. So our next question, we actually have two, and I think they're, they're com they can be combined as one. So the theme with this weekend is surrender moment by moment. How do we surrender? How do I know that I am truly surrendering and not just modifying my behavior? Sounds familiar. Uh, you're going to have to come to the rest of Brother Jackson's <laughs> seminar. It's going to be three hours tomorrow to answer that question. But anyway, I let him take it from here. I mean, there, you know, any quick answer leaves questions. And even after a long answer leaves questions. Bottom line is, and I, I hit one of it, a couple of them today, and the closer you get to Jesus, the more sinful you look in your own eyesight. And the more sinful you look in your own eyesight, the more deeply you surrender to Jesus moment by moment. So how can you tell? Usually we say, well, you can tell because you, you're growing. You can see how you're growing more righteous. But if you're walking close to Jesus, the closer you get to Jesus, the more sinful you're going to see yourself to be and the more deeply committed to surrender you will become. So that, for me, lets me know it's not behavior modification because the behavior modification says you change it. Surrender says... Only Jesus can. Next question. I'm going to join the Marines. If I, had to take my, if I had to take the life of one person to save many, would God forgive me? I'm going to join the Marines. If I had to take the life of one man to save many, would God forgive me? Well, you have to ask more specific questions about the situation, for one thing. I mean, are you doing this in self-defense, in defense of the people that you are serving? You know, the Adventist Church has a long history of involvement in the armed forces. We're all familiar now with the conscientious objector who who was drafted or who joined, willingly joined the, the army, I believe, but did not carry a gun, refused to, and was a saver of life and saved many. Now, there are others who don't go that route, um, and, you know, I'm not here to cast judgment on their decision, but what is your motivation? What is your motivation? And what, what is the repentance you know, is God is not, God is able to save us no matter what we do, what we have done, what our lives have been in the past. Are we participating in these behaviors willfully? Are we putting us in a place where we are actually arguing against the Holy Spirit? Or are we sincerely seeking for that conviction and that conversion the repentance that leads us to actually put away things that have been bad for us. So I don't know if that addresses the question specifically, but what is really the underlying motivation of the act that we do and then the repentance that we ask for? I was just going to mention that the question is phrased as sort of two different questions, right? The question is, can God forgive if I did dot, 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 and the answer is, there is no sin God can't forgive, right? 
But that's not the real question. That's not the real question. The real question is, driving at the root is, is this the best choice for a Christian? Right? And um, I just want to share one verse. This is Jesus when he was brought before Pilate. This is John 18, 36. He says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. And again, this goes back to my answer to the previous question is, which kingdom are we fighting for? What are we, what are we trying to accomplish? And what am I doing to advance the ultimate cure and the solution to the sin problem? And the answer is Revelation 14, verses 6 through 12. And so I, I believe uh, Pastor Kiala here has something else to add, so uh, I'll let him take it from here. Thank you, Alistair. Um, <laughs> no, um, John chapter 11, verse 50, is talking about how to, you know, to kill one man to save many. It says that's, that was the thinking of the corrupt religious leaders of Jesus' day. And they said in John eleven fifty, 50, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation will perish not. So um, they're thinking of, oh, this, it's, it's okay to kill one person so we can save the whole nation. And that's why they killed Jesus in their mind to save the whole nation. So um, when the Bible says thou shalt not kill, it really means thou shalt not kill. And trust in God that he will be doing a miracle through you, whatever it was weighing as you serve in the military. Our next question it states, why, why does addiction happen as anorexia and bulimia? So you can listen to the messages from this afternoon on Audioverse. <laughs> right, Alistair? It'll be up soon. Uh, so anorexia, bulimia, um, these are food addictions, basically. These are addictions of, or, or issues of how food is used, consumed or not consumed, binge eating, so on and so forth. These are real problems that certain people face. Now, what we talked about today is that in every addiction, what the individual is doing is trying to fill a void. There's a loss, there's pain, there's suffering in their life that has led to the development of this addiction. It, an addiction actually produces a biochemical response in their brain that eases their pain. And so they're really medicating themselves with the behavior, with the substance, and yes, even some foods can be that. Um, so the behavior patterns of that, I, I would say in a quick answer, look for the pain, the suffering that they have experienced in, in an um, earlier part of their childhood or even in adulthood that has precipitated these. To add to that story, what she's saying is so true, Angie's sharing this. Um, actually, I met someone who shared her testimony that um, she struggled with her weight and she went to a lot of the self-supporting ministries, um, of health ministries to overcome her appetite to lose that weight, and, she, and then she discovered the root cause, and we talked about it, and she realized that, what was it? And it clicked in her mind that it was actually, she was an athlete and very slim her whole life, and she had suppressed a, a, a negative thought in her mind for all these years, and finally it clicked when she was like 22 years old, the, the remembrance of when her uncle had unfortunately raped her when she was a little child, had come back to her 22, and that pain she's talking about, 
came to her, and food was her way to numb her pain. So just piggybacking on what Angie was saying here. Very deep. Very good answers. Our next question states, what made you decide to become a pastor and or whatever profession you may have? So in other words, how do you know uh, what led you to choose what you are right now? I am not an ordained pastor, <laughs> just so you all know. <laughs> but I, I have been called to ministry by God. And um, I, it, it's a long story, honestly. But really, it was a series of events in my life um, that led me to to understand the importance of nutrition, of diet, of healthy lifestyle, um, and a process of learning the importance of this on our physical health, but also on our emotional health, our spiritual health, and in other ways. Um, and, and just the joy in seeing people come to that realization and understanding that they can actually do something about these issues um, and, and wanting to help them and wanting to serve them. So it's been a process for me. I'm not the type of, I, I am not the one who knew exactly wanted, what I wanted to be when I was 12 years old. You know, it was a process. I went through different stages, but I know that in every stage, because of much prayer, um, and much seeking of guidance from trusted counselors as well, that all of those different uh, aspects of my professional development were what God was using to prepare me for where he has me today. I feel like this is a question of what you want to be when you grow up, and I'm not sure I feel like I'm grown up yet. Um, so I may, I may change my you know, path a few more times, but at any rate, the, the underlying motivation behind why I do what I do, I sort of have a strange job. I work for Audioverse, which didn't exist when I was a kid. So I never knew this was what I wanted to do. Uh, so there's a statement found in the book Education, page 262, paragraph 1. It's a chapter called The Life Work. And this has been sort of my driving... Um, driving force behind how I choose what I do with my time and my life. It says, success in any line demands a definite aim. He who would achieve true success in life must keep steadily in view the aim worthy of his endeavor. Such an aim is set before the youth of today. So all you young people out there looking for what to do with your life, guess what? God tells us right here. It says, uh, the heaven-appointed purpose of giving the gospel to the world in this generation is the noblest that can appeal to any human being. It opens a field of effort to everyone whose heart Christ has touched. So I have um, not been called to the ministry in the sense of as a pastor, and I'm okay with that. Because I don't have to be a pastor to do what I just read. And so right now, I'm uh, in a position running a nonprofit organization, uh, self-supporting, if you will, supporting Ministry of the Adventist Church as a layperson involved with my local church and doing things like, you know, GYC Southwest and things like that and speaking. And I believe in other ways, you know, giving Bible studies and ministering to others. Uh, whatever career I'm in, uh, I'm going to be trying to achieve this success that God has told us, and that is to give the gospel to the world. That's it. There's nothing else worthy of our time. 
I guess what um, inspired me was a text that every time I came to a critical point in my life, this text always popped up somewhere. And it was Isaiah 61, verse 1. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. And so I guess God speaks to His Word, and also He speaks to providence, I believe. When He opens up doors, and He leads in that direction. And um, even though I'm ordained minister of the gospel, I really believe that you're all called to the ministry. Amen? <laughs> and God can and will use you. And you know the amazing thing about in Jesus' day, he broke that caste system down of the clergy and the laity. And he broke it down. In fact, it says in Acts that, you know, the disciples, they weren't ordained ministers. They were lay people. But it said, usually the pastors preach and the lay people converted. But actually then it says that the disciples preached and many of the priests became converted. So here was the lay people preaching and the pastors became converted. Can you hear amen? Amen? So God's going to use every single one of you and he's called you. Amen? I'm good. <laughs> he doesn't want to share. Yeah, that's true. I agree. Now broke the fix. All right. So um, just uh, thank you guys for your time. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.